Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Vaccine requirements have been much in the news lately, tied primarily to the COVID-19 pandemic. But disputes over requiring vaccines have been with us for decades. How to balance respecting individual autonomy with protecting public health is not a new issue. It's played out with particular force when it comes to children. Now, all states have vaccine requirements for children as they enter school, and those requirements are often pretty widely known. Less well-known are requirements related to childcare, which can affect children long before they reach school age. Vaccine requirements for childcare in the United States is the topic of today's episode of A Health Policy. I'm here with Alexandra Bhatti, Director of U.S. Vaccine Policy at Merck. Ms. Bhatti and co-authors published a paper in the April 2022 issue of Health Affairs assessing childcare vaccination requirements in the United States. They found considerable variation across the 50 states in Washington, D.C. Now, while all jurisdictions require children birth through age five to meet certain requirements to attend school or childcare programs, the states are uneven in their breadth, enforcement, and implementation of these requirements. We'll discuss these findings in today's episode. Ms. Bhatti, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's so great to be here. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. I'm hoping you can just set the stage with answering what may seem like an obvious question, but why do we even have vaccine requirements for participating in childcare? Alan, that's a great question. And before we dive in, I do just want to share at the top that this isn't intended to be legal advice. Um, But that being said, vaccination requirements for childcare and childcare entry, as well as attendance, are really important tools to help achieve and maintain high vaccination coverage rates. This, in turn, helps lower the likelihood of vaccine-preventable diseases and outbreaks in our communities. In fact, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Community Guide recommends vaccination requirements for childcare as well as school and college attendance because of that very reason. So in short, vaccination requirements are one of several really important strategies that are used to help prevent the spread of disease and help keep our communities healthy. So that's really interesting because it's a reminder that it's not just about spread within the childcare setting. It's about community spread, something we've all learned a lot about with COVID and just increasing the likelihood that there won't be a spread of these diseases in the community is reinforced by assuring that children uh, uh, participating in childcare arrangements are vaccinated. That makes a lot of sense to me. Can you give me some examples of diseases that these vaccines prevent, and maybe a little sense of what the historical toll of some of those diseases are that makes it important enough for us to require vaccines? Certainly. So that's a great question. Some of the, an example of one of the infectious diseases that vaccines can prevent is seasonal influenza, which I think we're all very familiar with. And history has shown that this is a powerful lever to help stop the scourge of infectious and communicable diseases. Children are now living much longer than they did prior to vaccines, and requirements have been a critical linchpin to help ensure that. I said at the outset that we have these requirements across the country, but um, this has been a controversial topic from the outset. Give if me, if you could, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about the legal history of vaccine requirements in in general for the population, or if you know it specifically in schools and and childcare settings, which are the focus of 
the paper we just published. Of course. And, and so as you shared, this isn't a, a new a new topic, right? Vaccination requirements actually date back pretty far. And believe it or not, vaccination requirements existed back in the mid-1800s, where they were first used to help curb the spread of smallpox at that time. In fact, the first school vaccination requirement was enacted in Massachusetts during the 1850s to help reduce smallpox transmission. And they weren't without debate back then either. In fact, one person's refusal to be vaccinated ended up making its way all the way to the United States Supreme Court, which is pretty huge. As as I mentioned, this is back when smallpox was rampant. One individual, Henning Jacobson, refused to be vaccinated, and he also refused to pay the $5 fine or tax that was associated with that noncompliance. Long story short, he was taken into custody and argued that that law was unconstitutional. And through that way, it made its way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ultimately cited in favor of the state, and in doing so established that key legal principle that you mentioned earlier that extends well beyond vaccination to public health law more broadly, that balancing act of individual rights against common good. And from a school and child care perspective, this authority was further supported in the early 1920s um, from another Supreme Court case, which held that the exclusion of unvaccinated children from public, private schools is a valid exercise of state police powers, meaning that even absent the threat of an ongoing outbreak, like smallpox back then, it's within a state's authority to establish these requirements in order to help prevent the spread of disease within a community. Well, it sure is a reminder that these issues have been with us for some time, given how much we've heard about them recently. It's also an interesting reminder that uh, even policies that are on a very sound legal basis can still be the subject of very significant political controversy. So uh, it may be settled law that you can have a mandate, but uh, it sure is a political issue whether or not to have one. And we're seeing that play out right now. Let's look at some of the findings in your paper. One of the challenges in any analysis across the country is that uh, you sort of say, well, things vary. It depends where you are. Um, I wonder, though, if you can give us a few characterizations of the variation across states in their vaccine requirements for child care. So maybe at the outset, you can just start with um, helping our listeners understand what are the dimensions of vaccine requirements that you examined, um, and that'll then set the stage for some of the results that you report. Certainly. So we thought it was critical to look beyond just which vaccines were required for childcare entry and look at the other policies that coexist with those requirements that make up childcare vaccination laws. So this included um, provisions related to vaccination exemptions, for example, or grace period and provisional enrollment policies, all of which are provisions that are in place that could allow a child to attend um, without being fully up to date with school vaccination requirements. We also wanted to examine whether there were any other provisions within the law that related to kind of penalties for noncompliance. So for example, what happens if a, if a parent or child is not compliant with the law? And what happens to the childcare facility as well? So for example, does the childcare facility, are they subject to penalties? Can they be, can their license be suspended? Similarly for the parent or child, will the child be excluded from childcare attendance? Is the parent subject to fines? Or are they reported to the health department and so forth? 
And lastly, another attribute that we actually examined was also what are the staff requirements? So their staff are also part of this childcare community. Are there requirements in place for them to be vaccinated? Um, and to your point, we did see great variability in these attributes. Essentially, if you saw one state, you saw one state. Well, I'm eager to get into some of the patterns you observed. Uh, we'll do that after we take a short break. The Rural Health Research Gateway is your preeminent resource for free, timely, and relevant rural health research funded by the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy. Visit Gateway at ruralhealthresearch.org and subscribe to Gateway's research alerts to be notified whenever new rural health research is published. Follow Gateway on Twitter and Facebook at RHR Gateway for key research findings. This message was paid for by the Rural Health Research Gateway at the University of North Dakota School of Medicine and Health Sciences. And we're back. I'm speaking with Alexandra Bhatti about vaccination laws for childcare participation in the United States. Before the break, we were talking about sort of the context, but now we have an opportunity to get into some of the findings. And as you noted before the break, when you've seen one state, you've seen one state, there's tremendous variability. But there are some patterns. There are some uh, ways of looking at this that that give you a sense of how the variation exists around the country. I wonder if you could uh, just pick out a few examples of some of the top level findings and share them, and maybe we can explore those. Sure, happy to. So for starters, there were certain vaccines that were required for nearly all jurisdictions, whereas there are other vaccines like seasonal influenza that were only required by a minority of jurisdictions. So I think for, for seasonal influenza, for example, there were only two or three states that required it for childcare entry. Also, 90% of states allowed for non-medical exemptions as well as provisional enrollment of children who are not up to date with required vaccines are the process of being vaccinated. And so what this means is in the majority of states, there are opportunities for children to attend school while not being fully up to date with required vaccinations. And in every state, if a child isn't up to date with the requirements and doesn't fall under one of the provisions like non-medical exemptions or provisional enrollment that I mentioned before, they won't be able to attend childcare. This seems like sort of a, a structure of enforcement with a safety valve is sort of the way I would interpret what you're saying, which is we know that through a combination of uh, reasons, not everyone is vaccinated at the moment they uh, need childcare services. You don't want to make it impossible. But when we go back to your original goals of reducing community spread, not just spread in the childcare setting, you want to have a little flexibility around that, but you also want to send a pretty clear message that ultimately this is something you're going to have to do. Is that a reasonable characterization of what you, how you see the data? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I think provisional enrollment in particular is designed specifically to be a provision that allows children who are in the process of being vaccinated, but because you know perhaps there's a series of vaccines that are required to be up to date, they just can't get that next vaccine yet. They still want them to be able to attend childcare. And so provisional enrollment allows them to attend childcare without being fully up to date, but they are in process. And that looks different in a lot of states. So some states actually require a provider to, to actually have a plan, a vaccination plan in place for that child to be able to attend childcare. 
You mentioned that you looked at requirements for staff, which is a really interesting dimension on this. We think of this so much as focused on the children. How did the requirements for staff differ from the requirements for the children? Yeah, this is this is so interesting, and it, it's a great question. So when we talk about children, we know that every state requires children to be vaccinated against certain communicable diseases to attend childcare. On the flip side, there are only six states that actually have requirements for childcare staff to be vaccinated. That's so interesting. Now, presumably, partly this is because we're talking about diseases of childhood, uh, some of them, right? That the, the concern is uh, transmission among the children. But you mentioned earlier seasonal flu. Obviously, that's not uh, uh, only a concern for children. So that, that uh, seems like an interesting limitation. It brings up a question that I can't help but have, and I suspect some of our listeners would have. We've just gone through with COVID uh, political arguments over vaccine requirements as well as other requirements. We've seen regional differences in the rate at which people uh, take advantage of the COVID vaccines. Do you see when you look across the country differences that seem to align with either political or regional characteristics when it comes to these childcare vaccine policies? I'll say, unfortunately, our study did not look to overlay political ideologies with childcare vaccination laws. I will say anecdotally, it doesn't appear to be regional. There don't appear to be regional trends associated with the types of requirements or mechanisms around them, like vaccination exemptions. But perhaps that's actually another opportunity for future research that this body of work can be a foundation for. You know, it makes me, since we're talking about future research, another is uh, timing. So I think of attitudes towards vaccines and attitudes towards exemptions as coming in various waves. You know, going back to the 1800s, the origin being a a spread of disease and, and events can occur which create a great interest in either vaccination or a great interest in exemption. And I wonder if uh, some of the differences have to do with when these laws were adopted. We'll add that to the uh, list of research questions that we could take up. So given sort of the lack of clear or, or easily visible um, differences, um, what's the goal here? You're interested in public health. You want to improve public health. How does having this comprehensive review of childcare vaccination laws and policies help us assure or improve public health? Well, um, we know that trying to understand the impact and potential value of childcare vaccination laws required an understanding of what the ecosystem looks like today. So having this comprehensive assessment is really important for public health for a few different reasons. First, it sets a really important benchmark, as you said. It can be used to document how childcare vaccination laws now change over time. As you mentioned with COVID introduction, we may see different changes to these childcare vaccination laws over the next year and years ahead. So we can now be able to document how those laws are changing and in which direction, not just in terms of the, the vaccines required, but to your point, exemptions as well and other provisions. It also provides really important information to public health professionals and policymakers who are trying to understand as they're exploring potential amendments to current childcare vaccination laws, it allows them to understand what laws look like in other states 
and gives examples, um, a menu of options, so to speak, of language from other states that could be useful for them as they're looking to, to develop policy. And last, I think it provides a really important baseline for health policy research to really understand what's the impact of these childcare vaccination laws on vaccination coverage rates at a more granular level over time. So again, not just looking at, is this vaccine required and do we see then a change in vaccination coverage rates over time, but how do other policy levers within it, like exemption policies, like provisional enrollment and grace period or other enforcement provisions, how do those play a role in impacting vaccination coverage rates as well? So I'm actually really excited that this could be a great baseline for a lot of future public health research as well as practice. Well, that was a terrific answer. And I, I really want to focus for a moment on that last element. Of course, as a policy journal, we're always looking for research that looks at the effect of particular policies. And I am struck, you know, because school-age vaccination requirements are universal, that hits, although they differ from state to state, they hit all children at about the same age at about the same time. Here, you have such variability. You have variability in the state laws and policies. You have the variability in what's covered, but you also have great variability in the share of children who are in childcare settings and the age at which they enter. And you know research the more variability, the more opportunities for study. So I think there's a real, uh, there's having these data will, will help us exactly, as you say, understand the implications of the policies with respect to uptake and potentially disease spread. And that would be very valuable to us. I completely agree. Well, Ms. Body, thank you so much uh, for the effort that went into the paper, which is clearly considerable, and for sharing uh, your top line findings that people can dive into more deeply as they have an opportunity to read the paper. I uh, really appreciate you being my guest today on Health Policy. Thank you. And thank you so much for the opportunity to share some of this with the broader public health community. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.